Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. The world's faced a number of challenges in 2020, to say the least. It was a year of great instability. We saw a devastating pandemic sweep across the world. We saw extreme climate conditions, civil disruption, global unrest. We have economies struggling, companies also struggling to survive as everyone just kind of finds their feet throughout all of this instability. However, throughout the challenges, we've seen green shoots of hope and the resilience of so many. And those traits are very much going to be needed as we head into this new year. Along with the ongoing upheaval of the pandemic, there are two seismic changes to contend with, and those are the impact of Brexit and a new US administration. So in this episode, we'll be looking at what both events mean for the global economy and how businesses should really be responding. Joining me to discuss what's ahead is Jennifer Trock. She's chair of Baker McKenzie's Global Aviation Group and North America International Commercial Practice Group. We have Jenny Rivas, who's a partner in the EU Competition and Trade Practice Group in Baker McKenzie's London office. And we are delighted to be joined by Jason Marzak, who's director of the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center. And just to let you know, in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules, we're recording this podcast from our homes, so apology if you hear any unusual sounds. I'd also like to alert our listeners that some of this information may be dated when you listen to the podcast, because things are moving literally minute by minute. Now we're going to try to make this as big picture as possible and discuss the wider business implications, but some of what we might discuss may date by the time you listen. So apologies for that. Jason, if I can start with you and let's look at the current U.S. political landscape. That is a picture that is constantly changing. We've recently seen quite a few disturbing developments from the riot at the Capitol to the vote to impeach President Trump. What's your take on recent events and what's been the reaction of global leaders who are watching this all unfold? Well, thanks, Jen, and and great to be with you, uh, albeit virtually, uh, Jennifer and Jenny as well. As I wrote for NBC News, President Trump's baseless denials of the results of the presidential election, his refusal to commit to a peaceful transition of power and his subsequent incendiary language have unfortunately brought us to this incredibly chaotic moment. It personally hits me uh, at home as I began my career working in the U.S. Congress and have great reverence for the institution and the legislatures, both Democrats and Republicans, who sacrificed so much already for this country. My message, Jen, to everybody listening at this moment is, in fact, that what has happened shows the strength of institutions. It shows the fact that the, the rule of law does prevail in the United States. And I think it's also important to point out that we're leaders Uh, from the United Kingdom Prime Minister to the German Chancellor to leaders of our own hemisphere, including the Canadian Prime Minister, presidents of Argentina, Colombia, Chile, and other countries have united in condemning this attack on U.S. democracy. This is so important as extremism is not limited to just the United States. I do fear, however, Jen, that Donald Trump has unfortunately given an updated playbook 
to leaders who don't want to recognize election results. As we as we look ahead and we look at this new administration, um, can I get your opinion on that and a spin on that? What are foreign leaders really expecting out of this new administration and, and President Biden? I think leaders are expecting a return to cooperation, a return to partnership, and a return to working through what are oftentimes really tough issues, but working through those tough issues together. President Biden will be tough in defending U.S. interests and, of course, will act unilaterally when needed. But that's not what his preference is. Uh, President Biden prefers collaboration and he prefers working through those tough issues together. They're also expecting the U.S. to, again, lead by example uh, and to be a critical player in advancing joint issues that require global attention. But I think it's also important to point out that the world has changed in the last four years, and it's not simply a matter of putting the genie back in the bottle. The global economy has changed, trade has changed, and the United States will need to be a critical partner in working together with allies in the Europe, allies across the across the world, and working through those tough issues uh, that have surfaced in regard to the global economy, especially in the midst of the recovery of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also looking at a Senate now that it's going to be split evenly among both parties. And that 50-50 split has only happened three times in U.S. history. What does that mean for President Biden's agenda and his ability to govern? First off, Jen, I think few people expected a split Senate back in November. Remember, it's a split Senate, but of course, it's a split Senate with Democrat control, given the fact that uh, President Biden is in charge in the executive office and Vice President Harris has a deciding vote in the Senate. So with a 50-50 split, what does that mean? Well, I think, first of all, President Biden uh, is, as I mentioned previously, somebody who prefers cooperation, somebody who has shown throughout his career that he prefers to work across the aisle. He prefers to bring Republicans and Democrats together to work through tough issues. So I think that for him, a split Senate will allow him to continue to do his business. But at the same time, a split Senate will allow him to be able to move critical items forward, including cabinet uh, nominees and others who require Senate confirmation will be so critical for building the team from the from the get go. The coronavirus relief plan uh, includes uh, $2,000 in stimulus payments an extension of enhanced unemployment insurance, money for vaccine distribution, delivery funding for cities, uh, states, schools. So I think President Biden will continue to be ambitious in what he is seeking, uh, especially with regard to coronavirus relief, but doing so in a way that tries to bring in votes from both Republican and Democratic parties. Great. And Jennifer, if I can bring you in, I mean, President Biden has another proposal on the table, and that's sweeping tax increases on high earners and larger corporations. Various forecasts predict that it could raise approximately two and a half trillion US dollars or more in revenue over the next decade. I mean, where do you think that money is going to be spent? And what areas of the economy should benefit from that? One area that we're really watching under the uh, under President Biden's administration is the promotion of technology and ESG goals in infrastructure projects, uh, particularly around transportation and energy. And we're seeing it um, already in, uh, there's been a kind of a, a trend over the last several years towards deploying some of this technology in our infrastructure. For example, in the areas of future mobility, when we're looking at automated vehicles and the need to integrate technology into our infrastructure to be able to facilitate the introduction of self-driving cars and, and similar 
automated infrastructure. And I think on the transportation side, we're, we're going to see everything from, I, I, I think the Biden administration has this renewed commitment to create millions of jobs to rebuild our infrastructure from our airports who desperately need it uh, to bridges and electrical grids. I think we're going to see sustainability goals built into those infrastructure projects and the use of technology to help further those goals. Jason, the US economy, it's been devastated by COVID-19, like many countries around the world. But the Biden-Harris administration, they've stated their plans to, quote, build back better. Can you walk us through what you think they need to do to accelerate growth and how it will affect businesses? Build back better. What does that mean? It means building back the U.S. economy, but not building it back to where it was before. Using the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to leapfrog in certain areas, to be well positioned uh, for so that workers across the United States can uh, compete uh, technologically and in other areas in, in this in this century. To accelerate growth, I think President Biden knows from the get-go he has to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. Uh, He has to stop the unfortunate daily record of new cases, of new hospitalizations, and the tragic new deaths across the United States. He knows that he has to get vaccines uh, deployed. Uh, he knows that will give people that confidence to to go back out again, uh, to be able to reopen small businesses, to reopen restaurants, reopen schools. Uh, all of that is critical for this first stage of, of accelerating uh, growth. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he also recognizes that, that building back means taking the U.S. economy into a new direction, uh, allowing the U.S. to be competitive in, in the areas in which the global economy is moving in the years ahead. And among those areas is green technology. It's about the U.S. being uh, uh, competitive in climate issues and in being a leader as we look toward uh, uh, the evolution of the energy sector and all those other sectors that are related to energy in the years ahead. Jason, if we could also look at Latin America, President Biden was the point person for Latin America during the Obama administration. How do you think his experience will impact trade and economic ties between these regions? And do you think the USMCA is really the right framework for further integration? I think, Jen, that with with President Biden, this is a, frankly, a historic moment for for the Americas. Uh, Never have we had in the United States a president who knows so well Latin America and the Caribbean and is so passionate about the region. He Uh, cares deeply about the region. So this allows for for the region to have a president uh, who understands what it takes to strengthen trade and economic ties between the United States and between Latin America. A president who also understands the power of the over 60 million Latinos in the United States who can also be critical players in helping to build those ties with with the region. And a president who also understands the hiccups, who understands the challenges in building ties with the rest of the region. Uh, USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement, uh, is it the right framework for further integration? Well, there are many things in USMCA that are an improvement uh, from its predecessor. 
especially for uh, for President Biden and for Democrats in Congress who who were so in, uh, critical in pushing USMCA through the finish line, it's the labor provisions in the agreement and the environmental provisions as well that are so pivotal to the, the thinking and the framework of this uh, new administration insofar as trade deals. Uh, but what's also important about USMCA is the fact that it's an agreement that looks to the future of trade. It looks at trade as not just being about trading goods, but trade being trade in services and positioning uh, the U.S. and its and its partners uh, to be competitive in the technology aspects of trade uh, that will continue to have even greater importance in the years to come. Another thing that the pandemic really highlighted was the need for companies to look to diversify their supply chain. And as many moved out of Asia, Mexico became an attractive alternative. Are there other countries, Jason, in the region that are attractive to the U.S.? And how important will that be for the new administration? What's important uh, for the United States, first off, is I think is North America. It provides a framework for further integration of North America. Uh, so Mexico and Canada are critical for uh, the United States' uh, supply chains. Uh, most products that we make um, as part of North America cross the border multiple times uh, as part of just-in-time production. So what will be critical as well is to ensure that those supply chains are efficient and resilient moving into the future. It's also important to look at other parts of the hemisphere. Uh, Colombia uh, 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 is, is one country that has been looked at uh, quite some for some time as a nearshoring uh, destination. Central America also offers many promising opportunities in regard to uh, textile uh, trade and production. What is also important to be able to capture this opportunity of diversification of supply chains, nearshoring of supply chains, is the rule of law. Uh, and this is where firms like Baker McKenzie are, are so important so far as informing clients about the opportunities that exist in countries, but also, frankly, the risks that exist. And so the question becomes how to accelerate some of those opportunities and mitigate mitigate the, the risks that, that, that come with um with uh, with investment in countries, but there are incredible opportunities across the hemisphere uh, for diversification of supply chains and for a nearshoring uh, in the years to come. So, Jennifer, can I throw that to you then? Uh, Jason said that it's uh, you know it's great for law firms to be able to explain the legalities, the risks involved in diversification of supply chains. What are your thoughts on that? And how can supply chains also be used to strengthen efforts to meet ESG goals in the Americas, which is also a big topic? We've seen a lot of media and a lot of attention around supply chains and their, how critical they are in um, ensuring free flow of goods and, and sustainability of our global economy. And a lot of, our, a lot of businesses are really looking at, um, and, and, and they've been driven by the necessity of COVID and Brexit and other geopolitical issues at kind of revamping and looking at their supply chains in a fresh new way. And as they do that, I think it's pretty clear that long-term transformation of supply chains and renewal go hand in glove with delivering on ESG and sustainability priorities. You've got new opportunities in supply chain digitization, robotics, and other technologies that are all being used to streamline supply chains while also achieving sustainability goals. 
Um, and I think you also see sustainability coming through as companies are facing financial challenges and seeking both public and private financing, um, which often comes with associated sustainability or ESG goals, particularly in the areas of uh, forced labor and human trafficking. So I think this COVID crisis that we've all been enduring has really shown the spotlight on how ESG priorities can really fit with reimagining supply chains, bringing in technology, digitizing um, production lines, being more selective and more having more control about your suppliers, and at the same time um, being incentivized by some of the financial um, strings that come with getting financing or, or public aid to survive the, the current pandemic situation. And as chair of the Global Aviation Group, I mean, what are your thoughts from an aviation perspective? It's obviously one of the hardest hit sectors uh, as a result of COVID, right? I don't think we've had a crisis like this in the history of aviation from a, a sector standpoint. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of um, aviation sector entities being creative and using this um, situation as another um, impetus for reimagining supply chains. So as one example, we see our aircraft parts manufacturers that are using um, 3D part uh, printing to put parts on aircraft engines, for example, or using new sustainable composites as one way of reducing their supply chain uncertainties and also increasing operational efficiencies along uh, with reducing costs. Um, just a couple of examples here. Uh, GE Aviation is pioneering components for super alloys and thermoplastic composites for commercial and military aircraft, um, which is not only helping to extend the life cycle of engines, reduces uncertainty in the supply chain, but it also really leads the way for applying this kind of technology in other sectors. And so we're seeing the aviation industry kind of step up, provide that innovation that will not only sustain the, the sector, but also has um, benefits for other sectors that are impacted. And of course, in doing all of this, this means less reliance on fossil fuels, um, more control over the suppliers. And so there's really a lot of opportunity to bring the digital transformation that we're seeing in the context of supply chain and also achieving ESG goals in the process. Great, that sounds promising. Let's now turn to the other side of the pond and look at Brexit, another headline-grabbing issue to say the least. We saw a last-minute deal come through and I'd love to bring Jenny in on this. Jenny, can we get your thoughts on that deal and what it means for businesses, both in the short term and in the long term? A really a nail-biting result. Last minute, finally, a deal was reached. So I think the initial um, response was once a, one of relief. Finally, we have a deal. We can move on. We are not faced with a no-deal situation, which would have been catastrophic from an economic perspective, both for the EU and the UK, because we would have been compounding the situation that we currently have with covid but then, as you've said, from a sort of immediate and longer term perspective, businesses now have to implement and deal with the consequences that uh, moving the UK out of the European Union needs. And by being part of the European Union, the UK had access to the four fundamental freedoms of the European Union single market and customs union, which was free movement of goods, free movement of persons, 
free movement of services and freedom of investment, which is very significant in terms of access to um, a, a, an additional market. And with Brexit, the UK has lost all of those fundamental freedoms. And although we talk about a free trade agreement, that does not mean free trade. It's often misleading. And there's been reports in the press that uh, having reached a deal, this means that goods can move duty-free between the EU and the UK, but that is not the case. Um, duty-free movement is only available for goods that qualify as having been manufactured in the UK or in the EU, and therefore qualify as originating in the UK and EU. Very much similar to your US MCA situation with goods coming from Canada or from Mexico into the US. So a big departure on the goods front, um, also reintroduction of a customs border, so increased costs, potential delays at the border. And we've had much reports recently of concerns, particularly around the food sector, of making sure that food can move freely and there are no delays between the EU and the UK. And attached to that, another very sensitive sector or area is around uh, product regulatory controls and compliance for products when they're placed on the EU or the UK market. And unfortunately, um, except for a very limited number of sectors, um, the deal um, does not harmonize rules from a product regulatory perspective. So companies will have to comply with two sets of rules if they're placing their products on both markets. And there are a few exceptions to this. One of those is trade in wine, which will possibly be uh, something welcome for many people, particularly at the moment with the lockdown uh, situation that we're in. The other key area of concern is services. There's no longer free movement of services, and that places a significant restriction on um, particularly sectors such as financial services that will no longer have automatic passporting rights for accessing um, the EU. The door is open for further agreements to be reached uh, with, between the EU and the UK, so it's not the end, and we hope that there will be more, more harmonisation or commonality um, in the future. Jennifer, can I get your take on that? I mean, how much is Brexit really compounding the difficulties that so many sectors and so many areas of the economy have already faced due to COVID? Um, and from your experience, what industries are being hit the hardest by this? I think it depends a little bit on the industry. Um, there are some industries that are getting double hit, right? Um, those that tend to be in the advanced manufacturing, supply chain world, automotive, aviation, they've had some opportunity to, to prepare for Brexit. And then on top of that, are facing challenges independent of Brexit relating to their, their supply chain. Other industries, not so much. I think what we're seeing is that the cumulative impact of both COVID and Brexit is going to be much, much more widespread. Um, it's not the case that everyone who's impacted by COVID is also impacted by Brexit and vice versa, right? So it's going to be a much broader impact that, that businesses are going to have to deal with. The other examples, Jenny hit on a couple of, of, of great sectors. Um, and, and another one that I'm familiar with is the aviation sector, where um, it, it's not only one of the hardest hit COVID sectors, but it's also one of the most impacted from Brexit, right? So you have the entire framework for international aviation operations in the UK 
and that that entire framework has had to change everything from uh, where pilots hold pilot licenses and where those licenses are valid to the underlying uh, bilateral air services agreement to allow UK carriers to fly internationally and vice versa. Uh, So it's been an upheaval of the entire industry. I think for the aviation sector, in terms of Brexit, at least, they've had a lot of time to prepare and reorganize and restructure so that the airlines um, can continue to meet the various ownership and control requirements of their home country, whether it's the EU or or the UK. But I I think it's just one example of how some of these sectors are are being uh, impacted both by Brexit and by COVID at the same time, which... I think in the end is going to you know, result in a little more consolidation than we would have normally seen in, in the market. And Jenny, you know, we spoke about earlier the free movement of goods and services. There's also the free movement of people, which will end with the conclusion of the transition period, meaning it's going to become harder to hire workers from the EU. So what's your opinion on that? And what areas of the UK economy do you think will be most impacted by the loss of this free movement? And yes, it's really one of the biggest departures and one of the most sensitive areas with Brexit is the loss of the free movement of workers between the EU and the UK. Um, and this also applies to um, to, to students, to uh, people who would ch- choose to live and work in, in the UK or the EU and vice versa. So going forwards, um, EU or EEA nationals planning to come to the UK for work or for for tourists for longer than a period of six months will need to apply for a visa based on a new uh, points-based system that's been implemented in the UK. And the UK government was concerned about the impact that this would have um, on a particular sectors of the industry, where uh, to date we've had a free flow of labour from European countries, um, and therefore the rules have been slightly relaxed to make it easier Uh, post-Brexit in the UK and quicker for employees to recruit talent from overseas. Uh, And this doesn't apply just to the EU, would apply more broadly for um, workers coming from any other jurisdiction into the UK. So by way of example, um, a new skilled worker category has been introduced with uh, an annual quota, which allows a a limited number of visas that could be issued um, each year with the requirement uh, for those particular workers not to have to have particularly extensive visas in order to be able to come in. Despite these changes, um, the process will be much more onerous than what we've had to date. And so companies will have to allow more time to recruit um, EU nationals should they wish to do so. And also the cost of recruiting those nationals will be higher. Um, The filing fees, for example, for a five-year visa uh, are typically in the region of £12,000. As you've mentioned, certain sectors of the economy will be more hard hit than others. Those sectors are typically the ones that would have lower skilled workers coming into the UK uh, to take up jobs in, say, social care or hospitality. And there's a concern that those businesses in the UK will struggle to uh, meet staffing needs and maybe hit the hardest. It sounds very overwhelming. It sounds like there is a lot of changes. It's costly. There's a lot of red tape. There's um, a lot of regulation to think about. I mean, Jennifer, how are businesses coping with this type of transition? And what advice are you giving your clients? You're right. There's a lot of uncertainty and and a lot of um, concern about how this will all 
work out for our clients. Um, I think the good news is that we now have a little bit more certainty about the legal and regulatory landscape post-Brexit. But what's changed this year, of course, is COVID, which is creating that uncertainty about what lies ahead in the post-Brexit world. I think in the before times, uh, supply chains had the, the luxury of focusing more on cost control, maybe than diversification or resilience of their supply chains. And so Brexit just kind of adds another hurdle to that stability. And they come at a time where you've got um, increased trade tensions, geopolitical instability, nas- shifting national policies, and other uh, issues that are throwing a spotlight on the importance of supply chain to a company's overall health. And all of these factors together have really accelerated the need to reassess these models as we look for the transformation and, and future-proofing the supply chains. So in terms of what our advice is to clients, um, particularly in the supply chain area, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, make sure that you're conducting a supply chain assessment, kind of level set, see where things stand, um, identify opportunities or necessities for um, making some changes diversify your supplier base, focus on using technology to increase supply chain flexibility and efficiency, some of the things we talked about earlier today, and plan for the unexpected. I think it's really critical that businesses develop contingency plans in a way that they haven't done before. And if nothing else, I think the events around COVID and and Brexit have really just reiterated to businesses the need to have those contingency plans in place well before uh, a crisis emerges. Jenny, what about the impact for the EU? I mean, it's still obviously reeling from the economic impact of the pandemic. It now sees a loss in annual exports to the UK. What's the immediate fallout for EU businesses? Very similar to the UK, really, because with Brexit, that means the end of frictionless trade between the EU and the UK. So this will affect both sides. The extent to which the EU will be impacted is dependent on, as you've alluded to, the the amount of exports um, that the EU makes to, to the UK and their dependency on the UK as one of their key markets. And Different member states in the EU will be hit differently. Some uh, export larger quantities in the UK than others. And and the ones that are in that particular position, which are likely to be hardest hit, will be the Republic of Ireland, which has that very close relationship with the UK, um, and also Belgium. However, when we looked at this particular issue, what we found is that um, the EU uh, typically has a wider range of markets that it exports to. So on that basis, we, whilst we expect that the EU will also be ha- hit with a very similar impact to the UK, that impact may be less uh, felt than the UK will be. You are all leaving us with quite a lot to think about. And it's a really tough time for business leaders to be navigating their way through. I'd love you all to leave us with some best practice and some advice for those who are still managing their way through all of this uncertainty. Jenny, if I can start with you. The most basic advice I would have for companies is to make sure that they stay informed in what's happening to the extent they can to stay a step ahead with the developments and look carefully at their supply chain to see how resilient their supply chain is. And uh, diversification of supply chains is is, uh, one key aspect to make sure that if you are hit in one sector 
or one jurisdiction, you can bounce back with use of inputs or manufacturing operations in another sector. Um, and uh, having that close relationship and open discussion with your priority customers and suppliers to be able to respond quickly to those changes. We publish regular information for clients to stay um, abreast of developments with our monthly global newsletter, our Brexit blog. Um, so if companies are not signed up to that, they're very welcome to, um, and we will be disseminating the information promptly through those channels. Great. And Jennifer, what's your best bits of advice? Everything Jenny said, <laughs> that she, she summarized that, that quite, quite well. I mean, I think staying informed is, is key, particularly given that things are changing um, on a daily, sometimes hourly basis in the, in the political landscape. The other thing is, I think, just be nimble, be ready for change, and try to look at your existing um, structure and, and, and make sure that you have that flexibility break, uh, built in as needed so that when new challenges present themselves as they inevitably will, your business is equipped to adapt quickly. And Jason, the gens have dominated the Brexit discussion, so we're going to leave you with the last word. What is your advice? I'll say, as, as Jennifer said, uh, I fully concur with everything both Jennifer and Jen, Jenny have said. Uh, the, uh, excellent, excellent advice uh, to to wrap up this this uh, incredible podcast. Uh, for, first of all, I think preparing for the unexpected. I think Jennifer mentioned that uh, as well uh, in, in today's discussion because you never know what's coming around the corner, as the last few months and years have shown. Uh, also to look at all different scenarios, uh, look at alternative scenarios of how things could unfold so that you're you're prepared for the way or the potential ways in which a situation might might evolve. Um, also recognize the fact that every challenge and I'm, I guess, a perennial optimist in life, but every challenge brings new opportunities. Uh, so as we look at, for example, the the rebuilding of from COVID, what what are specifically those opportunities? What are specifically those new areas of growth for your business as we're looking at building back better, to use the president's term, uh, from COVID nineteen? Uh, or as Jennifer and Jenny were discussing, uh, as we look at Brexit, what kind of opportunities could Brexit also present uh, for you as a as a business? Uh, and the reformulation of Europe and its and its supply chains, and I think just as, as well, uh, also stay off of Twitter as much as you can. Uh, don't don't <laughs> overreact to the news of the day. Uh, let let it settle in before making a decision. Try to be longer term in that in that planning. Uh, I know that uh, I, I work. I have the great fortune of working so closely with Baker McKenzie and all the partners across the firm, uh, and have experienced firsthand the great insight and long term expertise that Baker McKenzie brings. And so I think that 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 perspective is so fundamental, uh, rather than getting kind of wrapped up in the day's uh, headlines. Great advice. Thank you, everyone. That's all we have time for today. But thanks so much for joining me. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. Use the hashtag resilience, recovery, renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website at bakermckenzie.com. 